0: North Otago, it's rich in history and strong in character. And you have found the podcast that celebrates all that is good within our district. Join Gary and Damien every week as they either interview a legend or someone who is putting North Otago on the map yet again. North Otago legends, up-and-comers, and a bit of history. The name says it all. Well, good afternoon, Damien, back afternoon. again. Afternoon, Gary. It's
1: nice having an afternoon podcast. As it is. Hayden Minkel dragged us in here on a Friday <laughs> evening, didn't
0: he? He did, indeed. Yeah. And so. kept us here for a long time. Yeah, man, that man can talk. He can talk some good stuff, though. Yeah, I know. I really enjoyed
1: listening to Hayden. He yeah. has a lot to say. But today's podcast is very interesting.
0: Yeah, apparently referred to um, by by. Dan- um, by Hayden himself, so, yeah,
1: yeah. But I understand you're a bit put out. The gentleman we're talking today <laughs> has more titles and positions than you, and you like to be
0: the big fish
1: in this pond. <laughs> is
0: that right? Well, yeah. To, well, of course, yes. But, <laughs> yeah. but luckily, he's not in this pond. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, It it'll be. Um, yeah, it's it's a real pleasure again to be talking to someone who's who's yeah grown up here, but actually made a a real name for himself.
1: I would say absolutely brilliant young man, well he's younger than me, but you know, who is just doing remarkable things. So I've been really interested in talking to Chris. So Chris Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora.
2: thanks for me on.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure actually having you on. Um, I just love your life story and what you're doing at the moment and how you're helping. But before we get on to all that, can we go right back to the very start and say, are you a North Otago lad through and through or when did you move to this district?
2: Well, I was uh, born in Omaru Hospital, um, so the old, old one on the top of the hill. Yeah. Right. So my, my mum and dad are um, both migrants, right, so they shifted over from the UK in the early seventies and I think they were part of that ten pound palm migration. Um, the UK government was not the UK government, New Zealand government was exporting importing overseas teachers to fill skill shortages. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dad was a school teacher and so he um, was from the north of England. So if you think about Coronation Street, that's pretty much where Dad was from. Um, and he was shown pictures of a number of different schools around the world in Canada and um, South Africa and in New Zealand and he saw Waitiki boys pictures and went, "Cheese, like the look at that um, and, um, and so he hopped on a plane with mum and then came over to New Zealand. A couple of years later, I came along after my two sisters and, um, and stayed in Amaru until I left Waitaki. Mm.
1: That's Fantastic. And um, he's pretty much stayed in
2: here. He did majority of his teaching till he retired at Waitaki Boys, or yeah. Look, um, my dad was a um, Waitaki from from when he arrived in '71 um, until a couple of years before he retired. I did a couple of years down in Dunedin with some contract with, with Teachers College, but thick end of thirty um, yep. odd years, and um, that was a bit of a mixed blessing. I think you know when you've got Northern English accent in the middle of rural New Zealand, that you sort of stand out like a bit of a sore thumb. And <laughs> Dad was a guy who liked his uh, walk socks and short shorts, and so he certainly it out amongst the boys at uh, Waitaki as well, and certainly when I was there, the boys let me know that they knew my dad, um, and, um, and certainly wherever you went in Omaru, uh, a lot of people uh, knew who he was too, which when I was a kid, didn't feel quite so good, um, but you know, over the years as you uh, grow up, you actually realised how much of a difference the old guys made in people's lives in a really quite positive way. you
1: no, that was a, right, and you've got to be proud of him.
2: Oh, 100%. You know, he certainly gave his life to uh, to that school um, and, uh, you know, he's probably a workaholic, really, and a lot of his holidays and evenings and weekends were spent um, computer club and geography field trips and, um, and he set up the computer club there at Boys High as well, did photography club for ages as well and Badminton for a bit too, so he did a whole lot of stuff um, with the kids there yes. um, and was really, really involved in the community too with the local church, local, local Rotary Club too, and then in later days um, with Freemasons um, in the various lodges around the town too. So him and old Rusty Leader um, were two peas in a pod. They yep. liked to plot and plan things and take kids around. A lot of people remember Rusty as well, um, y- you know, and, uh, and and Dad and Rusty used to plan an awful lot over a couple of glasses of gin um, in the evenings.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: and a lot of good uh, plans were hatched uh, over a bottle of beef eater. Yeah.
0: So I think Damien and I were both taught by Alan yeah. along the way, and um, yeah, we certainly got uh, some pretty good memories, actually, of, uh, you know, he was, he was a good teacher, he was very engaged with uh, with the students, and yeah, that when you mentioned the, the shorts and, and the walk socks, it's like, that was a wee flashback. <laughs> the, yeah, absolutely, that was pretty much his uniform, wasn't it?
2: Hopefully not PTSD there.
0: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, it's all
1: good. And so let's tell us about you. So whereabouts, what area, Omaru or north Otago? did you grow up in? And where was your first school?
2: Yeah, well, I grew up um, about 200 metres away from Omroo South School um, on the south hill on um, Hull Street there. Um, And um, my grandmum, she immigrated from the UK as well when I was about two, and she lived in a granny flat at the back of our house. So both mum and dad were working, and that was a little unusual for that time to have both your parents working, but Mm. they were able to, and and grandmum looked after us after school and stuff. Used to walk home for lunch as well and uh, and go sit with grandmum after school every day too, so that was really nice. I'm really sour school. Um, A lot of great teachers there, and, you know, you think about – your own schooling there. Uh, and when I moved to UK many years later, as fast sorting a bit, and I looked at some of the schools in London um, where I was looking at for where my kids would end up if I stayed in London. Uh, and the schools over there had you know, literally two and three metre high fences around them to stop people with guns and knives getting into the school or kids getting, out, getting kidnapped or abducted or anything like that. Wow. And that was just never part of our existence mm-hmm. or um, in, in Omaru. You know, it was the most ridiculous, safest sort of up- upbringing. You know, you'd be up and down the street and you're biking around the neighbour's place and uh, no cell phones to keep your GPS tracked as to where you were or anything like that. And um, so it was a really, looking back, incredibly safe and sheltered place to... To, to grow up in, really. Um, local school pool was open to all the kids after school as well. You know, the South School pool, you'd get a key with one of those little, little wee yellow lemon yeah. uh, key rings on it, um, and uh, you'd go in there after school and stuff, and that was great. A uh, really, really nice place to grow up.
1: Yeah, it would have been. In those days, yeah, you, you went home and the street lights come on, and everyone knew everyone, all the neighbours knew who you were. So who do you used to knock around with at South School?
2: Yeah, uh, so a few suspicious characters around the place. Jamie Woolstein, um, he's uh, back at Omru and he old is. Jeff Jones as well. Um, uh, Richard and Chris Hogan, so you guys might remember John Hogan as well yeah, as a teacher. You're at, um, naming a few good Omru people right here, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Scotty McLeod um, as well uh, was there. They're all the um, sorts of people who I uh, knock about with back at uh, South School and so on. There's you know Richard Dodd and yep. uh, Richard Williams and you know a bunch of other guys like that. So who are just really really good people. Bridget um, Dermot was there. Now she's a doc in Dunedin as well. Yeah. Um, so Shelley Taylor, Anne Taylor, all that crowd. Good good people. You know, um, good families, good people. Mm. Um, yeah, neat people. And then in later years up at Waitaki, there was you know Matt Chisholm, uh, you know Kevin Brown, um, you know Paul Tavini, guys like that. You know, good buggers Yeah.
0: Uh, very good. So at primary school, did you have any teachers that were particular influences on you? Um,
2: yeah, look, I can still remember them. Um, like, you know, I remember uh, Mrs Rawson from my very first new entrance teacher. Right. Uh, and she had rings on every finger and she was strict as they come. Um, but, um, you know, I certainly learned how to do my handwriting and spelling <laughs> very well from a very young age.
0: Just a, um, not bad for a doctor, I suppose. Yeah, yeah oh, well, Get that's right. right. It yeah. Got worse
2: over the years. Ellen yeah. <laughs> um, Bell, of course, as well was yeah. there as well. well. Al Bell was there but, uh, as well. Yeah, uh, yep, um, and so he was great too. He was pretty cool actually. I think he was one of the coolest
0: teachers there. Well, he's um, cool enough he- to do a podcast with us, so yeah. We've oh, talked really? To him as well, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Is he taught Mo. He had a Mo as the no, only teacher. The Mo, there. he got rid of the
0: Mo. Did
2: he? Yeah, yeah he looked pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. um, and he was the coolest teacher, I think, at, at mm. our school. Um, and Scordian was there as well, uh, and um, Mrs. Rawson, I said Mrs. Rawson as well, uh, just a great bunch of teachers there as well. Um, educated you well, focused on the basics, reading, writing and maths um, were strong themes there as well, um, and of course lots of time outside, um, which was part of the North Taylor away, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did right, and sport, did you get into sport a wee bit when you are that
2: age or...? Um, awesome. look, I, yeah, to be fair, actually, no, um, I played soccer till I was eight and then I gave it away. I was always a tall gangly kid that wasn't so good at sports, <laughs> um, and focused a bit more on the, um, on books, music, theater sports, debating and chess, and, um, you know, those sorts of things I did, um, when I was younger, um, but, um, you know, sports came to me later in life, really. Yeah. You're the last person picked on the school sports teams.
1: But are you the first person picked in the CrossFit world nowadays?
2: <laughs> Am I right? Yeah? yeah. Well, it's certainly something we'll come to later in life, but CrossFit's a very demanding uh very demanding sports. So deep,
1: you know there's no stone left unturned when we're looking into people's history. You've done your research. Right? Yeah, yeah. I've got yeah. something else up my sleeve for a bit later too that I'm gonna throw, <laughs> yeah, So
0: um. But you, you, your dad got into computers, he was an early adopter, I think, wasn't he? So did that um did that influence come through to you as well?
2: Yeah, it really did. Um, so I think I remember the very first computer ever we got. So my my uh, granddad brought it over from England in a suitcase. Uh, and getting a computer was such a big deal. Mm. Um, and that was the BBCB, and it had 32 kilobytes worth of memory in it, and that was huge, you know. Mm. Um, and that was just before the Commodore 64 and the Omega 500. So, um, you know, that was the very, very, very first wave of computers, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and so I think that was to right when I was about eight um, and so we did a little bit of computer programming and, you know, played Snake and stuff, of course, on that as well in tennis as you do. Yeah. Um, but they were quite – they were good educational computers, and I did a little bit of programming on those, and it got you that further bit ahead. And then after that was the Archimedes computer, which Dad brought through the schools as well. Yeah. Got us into word processing and spreadsheeting and stuff like that as well So it didn't mean you were digitally literate mm. um, And it meant my part-time jobs When I was um, at high school Were on computers helping people navigate their own Computer systems um, Rather than get up at 5am doing a paper round So <laughs> I would not have to do as many hours um, yeah. Of part-time jobs and got a bit of money spent, Like I spent on guitars um, And it also meant that my spare time could be used for my studies rather than, than part-time work as well Which, you know, has sort of had a bit of an impact On, on where I am now Yeah
1: so let's, so you obviously went on to um, intermediate and then boys high.
2: Yep, yep. I'm uh, intermediate school uh, as well. Two glorious years there uh, doing I don't quite remember what, um, <laughs> and then um, you know high school, which um, you know is uh, a pretty familiar sort of situation. Um, and I think, to be fair looking back, I was a bit of a um, an odd fish at boys high. Again, my interests weren't quite what. Um, were typical at the time, you know. Still very much then, um, rugby was number one, and then cricket number two. Yeah, uh, and that was very much the the mentality of the school. Um, Rory Gollop was the headmaster at the time, um, and um, and he was very keen to build the reputation of the school, very keen to build it up. Um, and during my time at Waitekiri, we did start to sort of see a few shifts in the culture of the school as well, where it embraced. Um, you know, academics and culture that wee bit more than perhaps it did when I started there, mm. uh, as well. Um, so
1: that spoke to you. You felt like what Rory Rory was trying to do is shift and and, and broaden the young guys' mind or young gentlemen's <sighs> minds a bit.
2: Yeah, I think he did. I mean, Rory was a good um, uh, administrator of the school. He certainly um, brought up, he invested in the grounds uh, and stuff a lot, didn't he? And um, the restoration of the place uh, too. He focused on international students, which of course brought more money into the school as well. uh, And that gave the school the ability to do stuff that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, And, um, you know, Rory was um, a good man, actually. He, um, there were a couple of times where, being a bit of a square peg and a round hole, um, I gave him some challenges for how I wanted to do things which might not have quite been the way that school You gave him some doing, challenges, absolutely. Tell and us said, about You know that. what? Well, things that I wanted to do are a wee bit differently. So, um, not being a sporty kid, yeah. um, I didn't enjoy being on the sports field because I was all arms and legs and you know, pretty much like a pipe cleaner uh, yeah. out there. Um, but all the other lads were a lot fitter, stronger, and, and more coordinated than me, so I always felt like a complete dick. Um, doing PE. Yeah. Um, and so that didn't feel as good to do that. So I thought, well, how do I get out of this? How do I just not have to do it? Um, and so I signed up to do some university maths papers and some other uh, work is probably a main way of getting out of PE. Yeah. Um, and said to Rory, look, this is what I want to do. I want to stretch myself academically. I'm really not interested in sport. not going to do it. Um, can't I carve my own path? Why not? Wow, that's um, awesome. And, um, and he sort of said, well... I don't have a good reason. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, he hummed and hard about it for a while, but eventually said, you're yeah, right. Um, if you're prepared to stretch yourself in this other way, I think that's fair. Mm. And so let me uh, take my own path a wee bit. And then um, a couple of other instances similar to that, where I said I didn't really want to do it his way and wanted to take some time out of school to do some uh, more focused study to make sure I got my better grades at the end of the year, whereas, you know, they had their own study program at school, didn't really fit with how I thought I should be studying. And so I said, I want to do it this way. Is that- uh, and again, he, he said, sure, you know, if you can convince your teachers. So I did, and he then let me do it. And so that meant when it came to my exams, I actually, you know, nailed them, and that helped out in the long run. But he gave me a bit of rope, um, and, um, and you know, I, I certainly hope I, I rewarded that. Mm. So that
1: thinking outside the box and challenging ideas, do you think that's stood you in good stead for what you're doing now and where you are now? That helps you just to push um, outside what people would normally, where they would stop, you'd go beyond that? <laughs>
2: Well, I think that's absolutely where it started. Uh, I think when I was at school, I I didn't quite feel like I belonged for that reason, like I say, because it was a sporty school and because I wasn't a sporty guy. And it just didn't make sense to me as to why um, things were being done the way they were and why the first 15 still were being um, you know, held up to be the pinnacle of the school's success where they lost every single bloody end of school. Um, <laughs> and they hadn't won you know, yeah. the blood match for God knows how long, and yet still they were the most popular guys in school. I was like, why?
0: This makes no sense. This yeah. makes no sense. Well, you're talking to um, a couple of footballers here, so we totally agree yeah, we with
2: that. Yeah, And then um, my debating team with um, Michael Denny, uh, Steve Helcrow, then Lana Nick Gillies, yeah. um, we just kept winning. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes we would be the only team that would win uh, Out of the whole school You know, us and Kim Brown's um, hockey team actually They were the yeah, other yeah. guys that nailed things to actually every single time
1: And they stood uh, up in the morning and read the results out And it was you did. guys
2: Yeah. They did Yeah, and and that didn't sort of translate into sort of popularity And you know, I still thought it was a bit weird And I thought this doesn't make much sense um, And then that whole idea of just saying Well it doesn't make sense, how can it be different Yeah um, were things that I that we did, and then um, about my fifth form, I think it was, um, my dad actually uh, pushed the idea. It was about we changed the high school, um, into schools, uh, not the school, the house system. So mm. you know, four school houses uh, used to just all be sports, and uh, Dad wrote a paper said, actually, if we want to build the Waitekiki man, the all round man, why don't we have a competition which reflects? Um, culture, academics, and sport equally, um, and Rory took that on board, you know, to his credit, uh, and then that brought in um, the inter-school singing, the inter-school yep. um, plays, uh, inter-school drama, uh, that sort of thing as well. Um, and, um, and then me and Kev Brown, we, um, started instead of everyone else who was doing school dramas, they did, um, you know, everyone else would take on a Shakespeare play or something like that. And me and Kev Brown, we did, um, Monty Python sketches
0: um,
2: and we had one famous one in the Hall of Memories one night where we just, you know, got cream pies and splattered each other's faces with them and hit each other on the head with, um, four or two, um, timbers to um, make the school um, you know, wet themselves laughing and um, and so we just took that, that culture and that comedy and to the, and, another level when we did um, you know, the in-school choirs again, we got all the boys doing U2 songs instead of some of the more traditional um, choral songs and the boys all got into it so that took us up to another level and, and it just started changing the way the school looked at music and drama and stuff um, and then we did the school um, dramas, like I would have Godspell and then the Dracula Spectacular. Uh, Scotty Dundas uh, was in Dracula Spectacular with me, um, uh, amongst others. And, uh, and they were really, really popular and went down really well in the town too. And that, again, just started to slowly open the kids' minds to the idea that actually maybe there's a wee bit more to school than possibly just... Um, than sports, um, and maybe that some of the cultural activities could be good too. And having been part of that culture change, I think, um, gave me the confidence later to think that actually you don't have to accept the way things are, um, and if you put a good idea forward, sometimes people will listen and things might change. Yeah.
1: I love it. I love the way you think about it. And, of course, here's my um, other little bit. You rose the superstar at Waitaki Boys not being – Um, in the first 15, but in Squid Christmas. Now, tell us about
2: that. (laughs) So Squid Christmas was, um, that wasn't quite, that was the band before me. That was um, uh, Nick. um, Was that not you? No, no, uh, we were Playhouse Something. with. That was the name of our band. Hey,
1: so I, know, was, I just want to say now, Hayden Michael, you sent me down the path there. Yeah, Are no, you? there
2: were two bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah, apologise. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you no, tell, that's right. tell
0: us about yours.
2: Yeah. What yeah, you yeah so the Squid you know? Christmas were cool. They were really cool. They were the band a couple of years ahead of me. They were really cool. We were in Playhouse Something, and um, we just got to play at the people's club all the time. It was such good fun. Yeah. Um, Wednesday afternoon, which was supposed to be recreational studies, that was um, pretty much an excuse for us lads <laughs> to go down and, and um, you know, you know, practice at the Penguin Club and then go to the Penguin Club when we were 16 and 17 We weren't supposed to be in there drinking until you were 21. So, yeah. um, you know, of course I was not breaking the law or drinking alcohol no. at all before was I was not. 20. No. That would never have happened. No. Um, and it was good fun. Um, and Penguin Club was a place that was full of, you know, guys who were at the works and um, that sort of stuff and got together on a Friday and a Saturday and just played music. It was a really, really cool culture there too. Yeah,
0: so you mentioned guitars before, so that, that was your instrument, was it?
2: Yep, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I um, wrote um, a lot of bollocks, ten angst um, music and, um, you know, played four chords and um, yep. strummed along to Nirvana, that sort of thing. Brilliant. And, yep, thought I was amazing. Do you still do a wee bit? I still do, I still do. Yep, I do. I um, I still like to still like to play guitar a wee bit, but not quite so publicly these days.
1: What about the drama? Is that taken off?
2: Um, did... the, the drama stuff was interesting. I think... Um, What I learnt from debating and drama was, um, you know, I think really has helped in years to come. Yeah. Um, With my time with the Cancer Society and a lot of the public communication work I've done, a lot of that does require you to be confident in front of a camera or talking to an audience. Yeah. Um, And all of that started with, you know, debating and school productions Um, and the ability to stand up, articulate yourself, uh, offer an argument, hold a position – and, you know, offer something which drove me coach with a bit of flair. Uh, and those are the things which I think I took from that. And they certainly helped, um, you know, lead me down a path later on in life, which I got to use those skills again.
0: Yeah. So just spend a little bit more time at Waitaki Boys. Um, so you were involved in dramas. I hear you were starring in Godspell at one stage.
2: Yeah, uh, so yeah, it was one of the. It was a great ensemble Godspell. Um Chris Hogan, Hayden Ricard, uh, Shelley Taylor, um, yep. um, amongst others, there as well. Yeah, that um, was a great production. My sister Emma was in that as well, um, and it was um, uh, it was Peter McHugh who was the director of that. Yeah, we'll come back to me in a minute. But anyway, it was an amazing experience where we really bonded very strongly during that cast the uh, as well. Yeah. I remember it, it was a yeah. Yeah, it was great. We filled up the, um, you know, filled up the theatre every single night for more than a week. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah. yeah, there's another one that Hayden mentioned that you didn't quite make, but we won't talk about that one.
1: Do you know what he's referring to? A 1991 production of The Car. Where you missed out, you were going for the lead role, and one H Minkel swooped
2: it and stole stole, it a,
0: stole the car. Yeah, Oh,
2: that's... never never forgiven him. Never forgiven
0: him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ah, fair enough. So you got through school. Um, so you went right through seventh form. You've got extra um, success, academic success along the way. So tell us, How yeah, was you? What, what were you, what were
1: a you doing Were
2: you prefect or anything like that in your days, or? Yeah, I was deputy head boy in my, um, deputy, in head my boy. deputy head boy, yep, and Justin uh, Wilson was head boy that year. Um, and then Matt Chisholm was head of house, as was Kev Brown. Um, and I can't remember who the head boarder was uh, as well, but, um, you know, Justin Wilson and, and Chiz and um, <laughs> Kevin, they were bloody good buggers. Yeah. Um, as well and so became good 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 friends good 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 friends and Matt Chisholm was an interesting bloke you know he's obviously gone on to have quite a high high profile career there as well but um Matt and Kev in particular were really good supporters of our debating team. Yeah. And, you know, Chiz used to say to me as well, he didn't quite understand why the rugby guys got quite so much to keep losing, so made the rugby boys come along and cheer. (laughs) And so, you know, whereas the other debating teams had no one turning up to cheer them on, uh, Chiz and Kev would bring the sports teams along to sit the front rows, and that must have been hell of an intimidating for the opposing school teams to actually have an audience of, um, you know, barracking 17-year-old rugby boys. Yeah. Uh, cheering on the debaters, so um, you know that, that helped us out well, and we went on to win the South Islands and got runners up in the Nationals that year. Um, uh, and a lot of that was helped along by the good support. So fantastic. And the other other thing that happened in my last year was we had a guy called Chris Butcher as well, who took out ducks. And Chris Butcher's gone on to. Uh, designed video games uh, for a company called Bungie, and he made a game called Halo, Mm. uh, which is one of the world's most famous video games.
1: Chris is incredible, isn't he? I remember as a young lad walking around school. He started Waitaki Boys. We're actually on, we're trying to track him down. Well, we have tracked him down. We're just working out a time and a date to talk to him. But, um, yeah, incredible um, what he's done with his life. But as surprising. Do you think um, your father's interest in games and computers might have helped him push that way towards computer games or just something he naturally lent to?
2: Uh, well, Budge was always, you know, a freakish talent for starters. You know, he's an extraordinary talent, actually, and um, sort of once in a once-in-a-generation sort of kid. But I think one of the things that I found about Waitaki was um, that if you had the enthusiasm, and the, you know, then the teachers there were keen to encourage you. So it was a school of diverse interests. It was obviously kids who wanted to just go back and work on the farm. Uh, kids weren't quite sure what they were going to do with their lives, and kids who actually wanted to, you know, go into professions as well. And no matter what you were doing, the school really did seem to want to support you. Um, and we had a, a year of pretty decent guys who were interested in quite a range of things Yeah, and they found ways of encouraging and supporting and making sure you did well um, and this, that was true for our debatings. we were debating the amount of support we got from the school was huge uh, it was true for the school productions That although that might not have been a thing that started to do well they got in a role and they supported that as well and um, and if you were inclined and put in the work, the school got behind you. Um, and that's an enduring memory to me of, of what it meant to be a member of the Omru community. Um, well, the support that happened was huge. Yeah. Things that happened at school got into the newspapers, when we fundraised for our debate trips to the nationals. You know, the amount of uh, financial support we got and donations in the community was massive. People just got behind you, you know. They wanted to see local people do well. Um, and, and so that, that's what the community wanted. And they loved seeing their own people be, you know be successful.
1: Yeah, yeah you did right. And that's what's coming through in a lot of our podcasts. We just have good people in this district and people that just get in support and help you to get to where you are today. So, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, let's talk about. So, you left school, I Did you know what you wanted to do straight away, or where did you head to? Yeah. How did that happen?
2: Yeah, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. I don't quite know why when I look back, but I did always want to be a doctor. Um, and um, David Evenden was my dean in scent Form. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, you know, I said to Dave one day, you know, do you think I can do it? And he says, yeah, of course you can, just be under no illusions to how much work it's going to take. Um, and they were pretty sage with his advice, really. And, um, and the advice he gave me was to knuckle down and get on with it. And if you're put in the yards, you get the results. Um, and the other person who was very influential for me in that regard was my family GP, who was a guy called Andrew Wilson, who's still working yep, in Omaru, actually. He had just recently got to Omaru from the UK, um, and um, and I'd been to see him a couple of times as a, as a patient, said to him, look, I'm interested in, in medicine, what do you think? And he gave me some excellent advice um, about how to approach um, my studies because the first year at university, it only took the top, you know, 120 people wow. uh, to get into med school. So it's ferocious to it compare to 1,000 applicants and 120 uh, people got through the, the gate. And they're all, of course, all so people from all the private schools in Auckland, all the private schools in Christchurch and all their chairs, and, you know, a little of me from my tiki Boys and Um So you felt like you were um, at a bit of a disadvantage starting off and you had to attack it. So I um, put my nose down and Closed my bedroom door and just got on my study for uh, 12 months, treated it like a job, and worked every hour that God sent and, um, and, and did everything I could to, to get myself across the line.
0: Wow. So what what year did you head off to uni? So 95
2: was my first year at university. Yep. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was 1995, headed down. Uh, stayed at Selwyn College, um, which was a really nice uh, hall, but I went there because my girlfriend was there uh, and also because um, they had a really good uh, academic program. with tutors there as well, and it was about 10 minutes from lecture theatre so I could get out of bed at a late time and still make lectures on time without too much effort. Yeah. Um, but I started work at 8 o'clock every day and I turned my light off at 10.30 and I did nothing but work in between. And so while many others were having a you know a year of exploring their boundaries and limits with alcohol and <laughs> okay. forming new friends, I uh, you know, I took the opposite idea. That was, you know, one year of work would set me up for, um, you know, for a career that I wanted to get into, um, and, and that was my approach, and, and it worked. Um, so, you know, got the grades that were good enough to get through the front door, and um, and, and that's how they got you, it was marks and nothing else. And the other thing that was happening in my first year, too, was they were starting um, student fees at that time, so the fees started going up. So it became pretty serious that if you mucked about, you'd end up with a big debt. Um, and the government was putting up the fees every year and were charging commercial rates of interest um, as well while you were there. So it was a serious business at the time. Um, and there were a lot of students who were engaged in protests against rising student fees. Um, and the first year I was there, they had this massive university sit-in where the Students Association stormed the registry building. Um, all of the staff left in a hurry. Uh, and the students sat in and they slept in the um, uh, in the university clock tower for over a week. And the police came in and there were big negotiations about de-escalating the protests and getting people out and all that stuff. And on one study break, one Thursday afternoon, I wandered down to the sit-in and to have a look around. And there were these crazy international socialists who were saying we should be breaking everything and smashing everything. um, These other guys who were saying, oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. And then there was this um, young student leader who was then trying to negotiate and navigate and, um, you know, broker all of the stuff and try to find some kind of common resolution of the way through. Uh, and she was an incredibly impressive and articulate um, student leader who I thought was very sensible and moderate trying to broker this uh, very complicated situation with competing needs and still get the student message across. Um, and, um, and I think it was about eight years after that we got married.
0: Oh, so that was Rachel. <laughs> yeah, that was Rachel. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a cool story.
2: <laughs> it's a true story too <laughs>
0: yeah, glad you took one
1: afternoon off from studying
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's right yeah, She later became student president And the year
2: before her at, um, at university There were a whole bunch of protests as well And they were led by a guy called Grant Robertson um, <laughs> So it's an illustrious um, You know uh, Menagerie of politicians That went through that uh, university at that time
0: so, so we better mention Rachel's last name I suppose So people know yeah. who she is
2: yeah, Rachel Brooking. so yeah. Uh, yeah, Rachel's currently a uh, uh, Member of Parliament for this part of the world.
0: And now a Minister.
2: Yeah, Minister of Oceans and Fisheries, uh, Associate Minister of Immigration and Environment, so the mm-hmm. skills well suited to her skill set.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, we've worked with her on things like resource management, um, the, the, the reforms of that, and yeah, she's a buddy MP for Waitaki, and uh, yeah, it's been um, really good working with her, so... Yeah, she's, uh, she's yeah in the right place, I think, for her skill set. She's doing a good yeah. job.
2: Yeah, she's a uh, she's a sensible and, um, you know, issues-focused individual who's not partisan and she thinks things through and she's logical. And just exactly the same as she was back in first year is that she was always interested in sorting out the issues um, mm-hmm. and working with people who are also interested in sorting out issues um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, doesn't go down party lines. She goes down what's best for the you know, for the community and how to sort stuff out. So I think she's exactly the same now as she was then, um, except with a few more degrees and a bit more experience. Um, And, um, and, you know, grew up in Dunedin and very, very committed to this region too. So, um, you know, I think we both share that same sense of social justice and fairness and the idea of, you know, giving Batchie community um, as well, their strong values in our house. Yeah,
0: no, good for you. So you're, you're, you're... 120 students in the first year. Did it all 120 go through that that pass, what? what, How does that work? What's the filter system that that goes through?
2: So first year you get over the hurdle um, and out of 1,000 applicants, 120 get in or got in that that time. It's more now. Um, And after that, it was actually pretty hard to fail. Right. Um, you know, once you got in, um, they looked after you pretty well and you had to make a distinct effort to not get through the rest of it. Mm. Um, and um, But of course, the people who got through med school self-selected for uh, type A personalities and being a bit obsessive um, and so carried on doing... Hard work. Um, I kept up my interest in um, advocacy and leadership throughout that time. I was president of the students, Medical Student Association and then New Zealand Student Association, Medical Student Association after that as well. Um, and we did uh, a bunch of things like campaign against student fees, campaign for um, better services for the need in hospital, which is quite ironic given what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, for workforce and staffing, we looked at new ways of employing doctors that were, were better uh, as well, as well as curriculum development. So we worked a lot through the Medical Student Association, was trying to improve the lots of students and the, the medical school too. Uh, and there were some great times as well. And through that Student Association experience, got to meet a whole lot of people and one of the people who I got to know very well through the Medical Student Association was um, someone who's now Dr Aisha Verrill, who's now the Minister of Health. So, again, um, quite strong Otago connections of, of people who've then gone on to mm-hmm. um, be leaders in their field elsewhere in the country. So it's a really rich, informative time.
0: Yeah, I guess that's you know, a characteristic of having a course that's centralised in one university brings people from right around the country and and people who are essentially leaders or will be leaders. So, yeah, you've got yeah, a lot well, of context.
2: That's, that's right. I mean, Helen Clark and Phil Goff and Winston Peters, they were all at university together, weren't they? It was that co- cohort of them that went mm. through. And uh, and mm. I think there's a real rich Otago cohort who went through at a similar time to me as well, uh, who've now gone into national leadership like Grant Robertson, like you know the Prime Minister's Secretary a guy called Andrew Campbell um, as well, um, You Aisha know, Verrill, uh, obviously other USA presidents around that time who've ended up in Parliament and politics, and uh, a lot of real strong connections through that time. Uh, and people who are interested in service and in leadership, uh, you know, often are that way from, from a young age. So they do those things and they carry on uh, in leadership and often one experience leads to another opportunity. And that was certainly my experience was that by being involved with the Medical Student Association at a um, local and then international level, that meant you know, I got to be involved in the New Zealand Medical Association and that got me involved in more national uh, level politics and helped me understand a wee bit more uh, of how the national systems worked. Um, And that gave me an eye on, you know, uh, how decisions were made or how decisions weren't made sometimes um, and what your role as a doctor was, and perhaps getting involved in how to pull some of those levers. That later on has given us an eye into how we've maybe been able to. Uh, tweak a few systems and push things in a way that that works in our favour to you know works in the favour of patients, um, and issues that have helped us advance the agenda for cancer. Mm.
1: Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. So we don't have very good statistics for cancer in New Zealand, in many areas, do we? But it's getting no. But it's getting better. Is that right?
2: Well, we, we have very good statistics if you're looking at things from a. Do we get a lot of it? <laughs> Yeah. So okay. we certainly, so yeah, that we do. Yeah. We're winning that one, yeah. and we're doing better at the getting cancer than Australia. Yeah. Um, it's just the wrong kind of winning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, our survival outcomes have been lagging behind comparable countries. I got involved in a project called the International Cancer Benchmarking Project, uh, and that's where seven different countries have started collaborating, looking at how each country's done over the last 15 to 20 years. And we started benchmarking a number of common cancers and seeing how we're we doing back in the 90s, how we're we doing you know, 15 years later and what are the changes been. Uh, and what we found was that New Zealand was either the worst or second worst out of all those countries for the improvements that were made in just about every major cancer you could think of. And whereas maybe 15, 20 years ago we were doing okay, um, over the period of the 90s and the early noughties we stagnated and really made the advances that we needed to. So,
1: so, what do you put that down to? Is it the ozone layer, or is it our diet, or what have you?
2: In- well, the getting the getting cancer in the first place thing um, is a combination of stuff. It's um, you know, New Zealand's got an obesity problem with the third fattest country in the in the world. Um, we have had until recently relatively high rates of smoking historically. Yeah. Um, we've been pretty slow on the uptake of screening programs like bowel screening, which hadn't helped either. Mm. Uh, And we've tended to have, although we've got a a free public health system by and large, we've generally had a a capacity-constrained model whereby people haven't been able to access the secondary care and early diagnostics in quite the same way as other countries have. And then I also think that the DHB model was another really big major stumbling block in terms of developing a national response to cancer care mm. and what happened with the DHB structure was that the government basically said look you've got 20 different regions it's all up to you how you do stuff uh, and of course those regions were a small country and, and cutting yourself up into 20 regions and then saying well, each of you doing it your own, own way doesn't actually help you mount a coordinated concerted campaign against cancer when actually there might be 6 people who are any good at a particular thing and cutting those 6 people between 20 areas ends up inevitably being a bit useless And we didn't have the central planning we needed, um, and we didn't have the oversight, and we didn't have the responsibility. And in my opinion, the politicians used that DHB model as a way of outsourcing responsibility. And so they could say any time there's a problem, that's not my fault, Uh, that's the DHB's fault for them to fix. And then they weren't accountable for the... Uh, problems that were there Mm. Uh, and so one of the things that um, I started talking about when I was the medical director of the cancer society was how we had a postcode lottery of cancer care and it very much depended which hospital you were in as to the kinds of outcomes you got and sometimes it was stark. Uh, There were some hospitals that had three times the death rates from certain operations than others Um, and that's crazy that we put up with that stuff. Um, and it's crazy that more wasn't known about it. But because there was no national oversight and there was no national monitoring framework, it was all hidden from view, and so it was allowed to carry on. And we ended up, I think, 10 to 15 years behind as a result of that.
0: That's really unbelievable, isn't it? It's, yeah. And we're seeing we're seeing the, you know, we, we, we probably noticed the different waiting lists, you know, depending on where you were, the, how long the waiting lists were, and I think with one of the things with the reforms that is going right is starting to be able to access services from different what were different DHBs and certainly for us here in Waitaki, having the choice between going to Dunedin for a service or, or going to Timaru, um, that's an opportunity we have now and we, we can go more easily to the other, the other DHB area.
2: Which I think is completely right. I mean, we're all in this together yep. and, you know, you need to move the capacity, uh, move the demand where the capacity is. Um, and having artificial geographic boundaries is just just stupid. Hmm. Um, and so matching the um, and, of course, there's population growth and demographic changes. You know, Queensland's growing quite quickly, for example, So, and we're slow at moving resources around. Um, and that you can't do without national oversight, um, and the old model was, was pretty poor. And the South had been pretty poorly served by the old funding model too, so it was a population-based funding model in the south didn't grow as much as the north did but we still had quite an old population and quite a geographically spread population too Mm -hmm. and for our size you know 350,000 people in the south target southland we had Omroo Hospital, Dunedin Hospital, uh, Gore Hospital, Belclut Hospital, um, you know, uh, you had a uh, unit you know, up in Maysby um, as well. You've got Queenstown Lakes and um, Dunstan too. So there's quite a lot of secondary you know, care services that you're servicing for that area, uh, and that does end up being quite resource hungry. Um, and the rurality factors weren't ever quite well Adjusted for, I don't think, in that model Which meant that we got strangled for funding So we've ended up worse off too as a result of that So I think the reforms are the right thing to do They're painful um, But they're the right thing to do Because if you if you persisted with what, what was um, Then you would just end up with what we had Which was ridiculous inequities by virtue of where you lived
0: mm. Yeah, certainly the Otago University's recent study Which showed you know, 21% greater mortality rate Amongst rural populations is... It's quite telling, and so yeah, we, we, we look forward to some better results than that.
2: The reality question is quite complicated. Um, so Rural uh, and rural are very different. Um, so uh, there are some, you know, extremely rural areas. Mm. Uh, and then there's places like Kitty Kitty, which are just outside of a, you know, main, main centre or a very affluent population, for example, have got mm. quite good access to services, which are still classified as rural. So um, not all rurals are created equal. And certainly when I think of rural, I think of the south. Um, but there are some places which are very, you know, wealthy rural as well who don't have that same issue. Mm. Uh, and when we did a bowel cancer study, what we found actually was that the rural Otago population had just as good access to services because they were quite used to helping car and getting access to services. So in certain services it was similar. Um, So it's it's a complicated um, situation when you look at it. Um, And some of it's influenced by poverty, some of it's influenced by rurality, some of it's influenced by... Ethnic mix as well, um, and uh, and certainly it's to do with the service density um, also, uh, and there are some uh, urban inner urban areas like you know Monaco and South Auckland for example, which have got you know would be classified as urban that still do very poorly because of the deprivation um, in, in the area as well. So it's, it's a complicated picture.
1: Chris, I could just hear your passion and and just that wisdom that you carry and that knowledge and what you bring is not ju- you're not just a doctor you're, you know you look holistically at all the issues and I think that's fantastic. Um, I understand that you had a couple of years over in London as well. Is that right? Is that with medicine and have you lived anywhere else or is sort of uh, Targo's been the home since you left North Targo?
2: Yeah, well, um, when we finished med school, um, Rach got a job at the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment in Wellington. Um, and she said, I'm off to Wellington, do you want to come? Uh, and I thought, I quite like you. Uh, so. Um, <laughs> Good choice. Yep. Uh, So I headed off to Wellington. I first lived up there for a while, but then the Puller family was pretty strong. So we came back down south. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of my training in Dunedin and then um, needed to really go and learn from the best overseas. So I went to a place called the Royal Marsden, which is the world's first specialist cancer hospital. Um, And that's in, um, you know, a very wealthy part of London. Um, And they had, you know, all the big celebrities and A-listers who went to that hospital. And they had money coming out their ears through their um, charitable arm and through the number of private patients they saw as well. Um, And the guys I learned from there were the guys who wrote the textbooks and wrote the books on everything, you know. Um, And the professor in particular who I studied under, uh, you know, he wrote wrote the book on gut cancer. Wow. uh, And did everything that was, you know, meaningful in that special area was, was done by him. Um, And he published papers in um, the world's best journals at a rate that our entire university hasn't kept up with. So he's, you know, an astonishing intellect. And so to get to work side by side with him for, you know, two or three years, I really learned stuff that you could never hope to learn in in, in any other way. Um, and of course, because it was such a big practice as well, you pretty much got 30 years experience in one because of the numbers of people you were seeing. Um, so really, baptism by fire, it was it was work, it was hard work, it was long hours, and he was demanding, and he let you know about it when you made a mistake. Um, but, um, you know, I just learned so much about disease. Um, but I want to be very clear, I think what places like the Mars do is they teach you about disease, they don't teach you about health. Um, and I think what I learned about humanity and compassion I very much learned at home, Um, and some of the great people who I learned from at Otago University at Dunedin Hospital and uh, other hospitals in New Zealand was about humanistic medicine um, and, and how to deliver that care. And the other thing that comes back to you as well when you come from Omaru and you work in Dunedin and you get to look after your old school teachers when they get cancer, uh, and you get to look after the parents of friends, and occasionally you get to look after friends yeah. uh, as well when they face the most challenging illnesses ever. Um, you know, that sense of responsibility and that burden of what you do is pretty high, mm. uh, and you take your job seriously. And it's not just a one and done, treat street approach, it's very much you're in this with them. Um, and so, the role of the doctor in a community like ours. Um, I think carries an extra burden and an extra significance and also an extra joy um, because you can get to be part of people's lives in a way that you might not if you stayed in a big, um, big, big place like, you'd, like like I trained in in London. Uh, and so whilst we had better tools, better toys in London, um, I think the sense of satisfaction from working in a place like to is much greater.
0: So you decided you were going to leave the UK. You could have gone anywhere around the world, but you did choose to come back back to this yeah. local place. So, yeah, talk us through that one.
2: Um, well, I got offered a permanent job in London, um, and it was um, a pretty effective place to save for your career. Um, you know, the numbers you're talking about earning over there are, are pretty big. Um, but I think the that was very much a couple of things. One was the fact that, you know, it, although the work was stimulating, um, it wasn't, my community um, and it wasn't my home um, and the idea of bringing up my kids in London in schools like that where they had cages around them uh, whereby the other parents were getting tutors for their three-year-olds to make sure they got the right marks to get them to the right prep school uh, left me cold um, and the notion of bringing up my kids in that environment and working in a system where it was fun but it wasn't um, a passion uh, just didn't feel right. Mm. Um, Rachel's family was here, she's very really close to them. My family's obviously here as well, uh, and it felt right to, to come back. It was a job in Dunedin, the guys, I knew them well. and They said, come home, and it felt right. Um, so I uh, came back, set up, um, you know, set up back here in Dunedin, and uh, I've moved 400 metres up the road since then, that's it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, well, I'm sure people have told you, but we're very grateful you've brought that back, what you've learned and who you are. We're very grateful to have you down here in the south. It could have been easy to go to Auckland or some somewhere like that as well, but uh, the fact that you're set up down in Dunedin and you do what you do, so that's good. And I know there are people from this community that just, um, when they when they get you as a doctor, when they have you, they just know they're in good hands. They know that you you care. Uh, but they get the very, very, very best professional advice. So I think that's fantastic. Well done, young man, for
2: doing that. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I think the key thing is that, you know, these are my people, yeah. you know, and this is my place, and, um, and it feels right, you know. And when people come along uh, at one of the worst times in their life and they put their trust in you and say help, yeah. uh, it feels pretty special to be able to do that. Uh, and sometimes helping is giving them a good drug and um, giving them a good outcome, and sometimes it's just being there. Um, and sometimes just being there, even if there's no treatments you can do to make them better, um, but by letting them know they're not going through it on their own uh, and by knowing that if, if they need help, that you're there to help them find what they need. Um, and, and I won't take that lightly at all. Um, and you're reminded of every day when you see the families walking down the street of the people you cared for 10 years ago yeah. um, and when you meet their families still, uh, you're reminded that actually it's about the people and it's about the community. Uh, and actually, isn't that what life's about?
0: Absolutely. And, and you've gone on to you, know, well, you carried on your advocacy for for people and and your leadership within the, the whole medical profession and, and you know that's really something we appreciate as well. the fact that you are fighting you know not just um, with each in, um, for, on behalf of each individual patient but actually for the whole sector.
2: One of the things that struck me um, pretty early on um, was that if I wanted to help the person in front of me, uh, I needed to change the reasons they were there uh, or get involved in things that were upstream. So I lot of bowel cancer. When I got back, would not have a bowel cancer screening program. And I wouldn't have so many people with bowel cancer if we had a screening program. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to help the person in front of me, I needed to do something which stopped um, the next guy getting it, you know, or getting at an a nerdy stage. So the fact that you see so many people with cancer and you know there's things you can do about it, that makes you think, well, actually the best way to help these people is to do something more, than just giving people pills and drugs. Uh, And it's about getting better access to drugs. Sure, that's been a big part of my life, but it's about the systems. And the thing around the systems was, you know, training in London was great, because I learned about things that you could actually do that that were different. Um, And making international connections, you could learn what other countries are doing by staying in touch with those people, and how they were doing things differently. And how I always thought about it was, if the, the decision makers knew what I knew, would they be doing things this way? And if the answer to that question is no, then it's my job to help them make better decisions. Um, And I believe still, uh, despite a lot of the opposite, um, that decision makers are generally good people. uh, that generally want to do the right thing. Uh, Sometimes they just don't know how to. uh, And sometimes it's a matter of political will uh, and taking people along with you. And so one of the things that um, I decided to do was to do less research and more talking. And that meant taking the stories about what I'd learnt from overseas, what I'd learnt from our own research and starting telling that story to both the community and to the leaders and start saying, here's the problem here's why it's important but more importantly, here's what you can do about it Um, and when we started telling that story about here are the people I see here are the problems that they face, and here's the solution, and we can do things differently. Mm. Uh, and that was, it was a was a lot of inertia originally, um, but then after a long, and sustained campaign for the National Cancer Agency, and obviously I worked very closely with Vera Missy-Vining on, on that petition and the uh, campaign for the Cancer Agency, but that was all that was about. It was about telling people this is not the best we can do. This is not the best version of ourselves. We can do better uh, if we only try. Um, and we had to overcome a lot of political resistance for that, um, but but we got there, and that was through sharing the stories of the people who who had you know come to me in my clinic whose lives I'd seen, whose stories I'd heard, um, put together with the knowledge I'd learnt from overseas to tell that story to decision makers to do things differently.
0: Yeah, that campaign with Blair Vining, I mean, it just it really changed the mood of the nation, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it really did. I think the postcode lottery of cancer care and helping people understand there was a better way. Blair had. You know, Blair had the common touch, um, and he's a plain talking um, guy who was just so incredibly relatable. Um, And although he never really uh, went on to university or higher education, he was one of the smartest people I've met. Mm. Um, And he had incredible clarity of thought as well and enormous humility. Um, And that, I think, helped people warm to him and understand what he said. Um, And Blair was always my last patient in every clinic. I made sure of it, because I knew that we would do the medicine in 10 or 15 minutes, but then we'd just talk. (laughs) 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 Um, And we would talk for, you know, sometimes him, me and Missy, and Missy would be full of questions as to Mm. why is it like this, why is it like that, why is the system not working for people? Mm. Uh, And we'd share the same views. I was like, well, it's because... Things could be different, but they're not because they've chosen not to. What do we do? And So we started that campaign, and it was great
0: yeah.
2: um, uh, to generate that change.
0: No, oh, well done, and, and thank you for yeah. the, everything you've put into all of that, uh, and the people you've worked with to, to advocate on behalf of every, you know, all of us. It's, it's very much appreciated. <laughs>
1: thank you. Yeah, what just impresses me. You, you know, you you come from this district that you're um, advocating on behalf of New Zealand and that's that's the stories we like. That's the stories. We, there's some been some really good people who have come from our community and doing great things. And I think, Chris, you're right up there, just your heart for the people and your heart for um, just seeing things change, that you can make a difference. And I guess some people just give up. They feel like they're butting their heads. But it just sounds like that you started off when you challenged Rory Gollop. I can see things different, and I know how to do things different, so you keep going until you find a way. And um, that's why this district's so proud of you and what you do. And what you've achieved in your life, and Gary and I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much for and keep going, mm-hmm. keep going.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, thanks. Thanks for those comments. Hey. you know, I think um, the most important question of all is why, um, and why are things like this, and why does it have to be this way? And the answer is it doesn't. The rules exist; they are human-made rules, and that means we can change them. Yeah. Um, and if we change them in the right way, then we can get better things done. Um, And sure, we'll have different visions of what that might be, Uh, but if we believe in our ability to pull together and pull in the right direction, then I think we can still achieve achieve more. And the job's not done. Um, There's so much more to do yet. Uh, in terms of improving things in cancer in particular, in terms of not only improving the treatments but improving the experience, um, and not only incorporating new technologies but reorganising our services. Um, and the pathway is pretty clear in terms of what needs to be done The hard things actually doing it sometimes, uh, and getting the systems to change and getting people to change their minds and getting people to do things in a different way. Um, but I know for sure one thing, uh, if we do nothing, then we're stuffed. Mm. Um, and if we do nothing, then people are going to carry on suffering and I'm not up to that.
1: Yeah. So just a couple of questions before we wrap it up there. Sorry, Gary, I jumped in there. So oh, you, no, look, I go. was going to
0: say it's a good thing you're young because, you, you know, you want to achieve so much and you are, you've, you've achieved a lot already. But, um, you know, yeah, you've yeah. got years of advocacy and, and pushing the system um, ahead of you. And, you know, that, that's, you know, I'm just so grateful for that to be very fair.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, I hope people don't get sick of listening to me. Um, I'm certainly very happy to talk. Uh, sometimes it's hard to get the people to listen.
1: Well, here's another avenue, and hopefully, people, the right people here. Well, you don't know who's listening to this podcast. It goes all <laughs> around the world, doesn't
0: it? My mum will be listening. Oh, <laughs> well, there we go. There's at least 10 people around the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, slightly more than that. So,
1: a couple yeah. of questions um, just to finish off. Um, so,. I'm just interested in your uh, relation, so uh, am I right, you are doing CrossFit, but is that your release, you get out and, and you can switch off? Because I can imagine the are times in your job you just see, you know, you just there's grief and sorrow and loss, and you come face-to-face with that probably weekly or daily, I'm not too sure. Is CrossFit your way to get out, or do you <coughs> live through the kids and support them in sport, or what do you do when you're not a doctor? How do you switch your brain off?
2: Yeah, well, I love CrossFit. I've been doing it for about two years now, just leave it over. Um, and um, it's just fantastic. Best bunch of people. And CrossFit challenges you every day and it keeps you humble yeah. um, and it lands you on your butt uh, every day as well. And you work as hard as you possibly can. And you do that with a group of people who are total, uh, you start off as total strangers and end up as your mates. And CrossFit's a real cross section of um, community as well. A bunch of university students, you know, there's um, you know, mechanics and uh, draftsmen and, you know, there's so an Nop and set um, guys, and you know a whole bunch of different people there who are just fantastic people. Um, and um, I remember one time I go in and chat to someone, they go, "What do you do?" I go, "Oh, look, I'm an oncologist." And they go, "What's that?" <laughs> um, and, and that's awesome. You know, that the idea is that you go in there, and all it's about is lifting something heavy, sweating a lot, and puffing. Um, and you do all that together, and it's fantastic, and it's such a great and supportive environment. Yeah. Also, there's. Uh, also, there's a bit of a thing there too that um, there's a good amount of research and scientific evidence that shows that. Um, High-intensity interval training, which is the type of exercise that crossfit does, actually reduces your chance of getting cancer, uh, and it, and it reduces your uh, rates of cancer returning once you get it. And I was always telling my patients about how they should do more exercise, and I thought actually I'm not doing that. I'm a bit of a hypocrite. Uh, I probably need to do that too, and so I do. And it, um, you know, as you get older, it's important to stay fit and strong too. So it's great, good people, good sport, good fun. Um, but you know, uh, challenging. And it's one of the hardest things I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got two beautiful, ca- uh, three. Sorry, I've got three beautiful kids uh, who are just absolutely gorgeous. I love to pieces. Um, and uh, they all do different things with different interests. Uh, sometimes they're interested in hanging out with Dad, quite often not. What um, age are they? Uh, 17, 15 and 12. Um, all, all very different uh, and beautiful, beautiful kids. And I love their company. Um, their mum's off often often away now, of course, in Wellington a bit. So um, they see a lot more of me. I used to travel a whole lot more for work than I do now. Uh, and when, you know, Rachel went to Wellington, I had to stay at home a wee bit more because I wanted the kids to have some regularity in their lives. Uh, and so that, that sort of slowed my travel down quite a bit. Um, but it's been great to, to spend so much more time with them at home than I was doing before. Yeah,
1: very good. Um, so my last question I just had, I thought, you, you get to see a lot through your mentoring and tutoring and, and um, are you seeing the next lot of young people like yourself coming through? Are they just as passionate? Um, are you seeing these ones coming through that will go on to um, do what you do and take over from you one day, or have things changed in a f- in the years that you went through med school?
2: Yeah, well, I think the challenges are different, um, and I also think life life's about seasons. And at the moment, I'm not as close to the medical students as you know I was ten years ago. ten years ago, I was working a lot more with individual student teaching. Now, I'm working a lot more with um, the postgraduates and with national and international. Um, groups. I'm not as close to students I used to be a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, and what I'm trying to do at the moment is bring the you know national and international experience back to a policy level to inform what we do with our services. And I think in, in years to come I'll get back to being able to spend more time with the, the students and I, I just don't get to see as much of them uh, as I did um, you know in, in years gone by. Uh, I think that the demographics of med school are changing for the better though. I think that Peter Crampton when he was AVC, he introduced a policy called the Mirror on Society which said that mid-school should look like the community. Um, and you should bring people through med school who are the same as the people who will represent the communities. That meant more Māori Pacifica, that meant more rural uh, people as well, and less people from you know, the rich schools uh, about the place, and I think that was absolutely and the right thing to do. Med school was there to serve the community, not to serve, serve the career ambitions uh, of the wealthy, um, and it's the right thing to do, um, and I think that's changing the demographic of the med school for the, for the better. We have got a big, big problem in New Zealand with uneven outcomes, in healthcare, and that is clearly borne unfairly by um, Indigenous New Zealanders, uh, and, and we have to fix that, and we won't uh, so long as the services are the same as they were 20 years ago. So it's a huge challenge for, for us to do, and I have great hope that the new generation will achieve that. Um, I've seen a lot of improvements in that over the course of the last five to ten years, but we've still got a long way to go.
1: Very it. Thank you for that. I've really enjoyed um, just hearing your passion and talking to you today, Chris. You obviously were a year or two below me, but um, no, I I feel like there's a connection there going through Wataki boys and um, uh, all of that. So, yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing and thank you for being passionate about what you do.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And uh, to all those old Watakians out there, um, you know, a uh, bloody good place to start from, bloody good people. Um, You know, I think the passion of the community for each other and the commitment of the people uh, is outstanding. Um, And I think, um, you know, uh, couldn't be more proud of the place I've come from.
0: No, well, thanks very much for being such a great ambassador for for North Otago and um, for all the work you do. It's absolutely fantastic. Keep it up.
1: Yeah. No. Cheers, guys. All right. Well, well, look forward to seeing you back next time you're back in North Otago. And Gary said he'd be shouting you um low-calorie beer.
2: Oh, fantastic! <laughs> yeah. As long as it doesn't defeat my training, I'll
1: be right. up for that. Excellent. Well, there's a great CrossFit here in You I'm sure they'd take you in with open arms. But thanks for coming
0: today. <laughs> thanks very much, Chris. Cheers, guys. Uh,
1: G'day. To- that was great, Gary.
0: Very interesting. Passionate, eh? Um. Fantastic achievements.
1: You have no idea until you sit and talk with someone how far they've gone or what drives them or motivates them. But mm. I just think, for me, what I picked up, you know, just even challenging at Waitaki Boys, some principals would have smacked that down. No, you but, mm. but they've encouraged, it, and that's obviously who Chris is. He 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 likes a challenge, and he likes to um he looks at things differently, and that's held him in really good stead
2: for
0: yeah. what
1: he's doing today. So.
0: I think that comment, you know, keep asking why. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, what do I put it, up with you well. all the time? Is that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm asking myself
0: that question all the time. Oh, I've got plenty Garrett. of good answers yeah, for that, yeah. but not for now.
1: All right, hey, we have to get some, some Kevin's on. We're looking a bit Waitaki bias this last few podcasts with Hayden and Chris yeah. being passionate oh, about Waitaki boys, it's but pretty good oh, we him Jim McGowan. So oh yeah, yeah. He
0: yeah. balanced it. out. Yeah,
1: balanced it. out. All right, we'll catch you next
0: week, Gary. Cheers.